Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where our goal is to bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. I'm Rexon Yu, Managing Partner at The Asia Group. And I'm Sherryanne Anker for Bloomberg News Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Today, we are really pleased to be joined by Scott Levy, Executive Vice President and Managing Director of NBA Asia. Scott oversees development and expansion of the National Basketball Association's strategic initiatives in Asia, excluding Greater China, and leads its business groups, including content distribution, global partnerships, events, and marketing. During Scott's tenure, the NBA has expanded retail and e-commerce operations across the region, launched the NBA's youth program in Southeast Asia and garnered over 28 million followers from Asia across the league's social media platforms. Earlier in his career, Scott helped expand NBA broadcast programming to more than 200 countries and in 40 languages. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really great to have you with us. Let me get started asking you about basketball culture in Asia, because of course, everybody knows about the NBA, but how big is the NBA really across Asia? Well, thank you both. It's uh, it's great to join you on this podcast. And it's incredible that uh, the following that basketball has uh, across Asia, uh, the sport is played in schools. So everybody has an understanding of the sport as they're growing up. Uh, there are courts all across the region. And of course, uh, the NBA has been on air for over 30 years. We started in China in 1989 with our first games. And now you can uh, follow the NBA on television, on social media, through really any service that you have where you access content, uh, you have a way to engage with the NBA. Uh, And we continue as new technologies develop to make sure that we're there front and center. I know that there's a huge NBA presence in China. In fact, NBA fans in China almost number as many people as there are in the United States. But you're overseeing markets excluding China. So how big is the sport in other regions like Southeast Asia or even India that you might think, you know, Indians are really into cricket. So how do you change that culture to veer towards basketball? Yeah, it really varies by country. Uh, In a country like the Philippines, for example, they have been playing basketball for over 100 years, and they have a very strong local league called the PBA. And basketball is far and away the number one sport in the country. You can go to any uh, of the smallest barangays in the the provinces, and you will see basketball courts on every street and everybody playing. Uh, In other countries like Japan, it's really starting to develop uh, a following now. We have two players, Rui Hachimura and Utah Watanabe, that are playing in the NBA on, on Washington and Toronto, respectively. And that, as you know, with the local heroes, uh, a lot more people are starting to play. There's a local league that's developing and creating a following. And then we, when we go to some of the smaller markets like Indonesia or India, uh, we are spending a tremendous amount of time increasing participation, uh, educating teachers and coaches how to engage kids to really enjoy playing sport. And we want to make sure that whether you play the game because you want to be an NBA player or whether you play it because it's fun and you want to be with your friends, that you enjoy this experience and then watch the greatest players in the world play uh, in the NBA. Scott, is it is it fair to characterize that you might describe certain markets in the Asia Pacific region as more mature when it comes to basketball and the NBA's sort of presence in, in a variety of dimensions? 
some as growth markets and some as emerging markets. I heard you kind of touch on that just now uh, a little bit. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit and kind of work your way across the region and where countries might fall into these different categories? Uh, sure. The you know, Asia is a very diverse region and, and covers two-thirds of the world's population. So when you think about each country, uh, there are different demographics. The economics are different. Consumer behavior varies dramatically. So we tailor our, uh, our business for each of those uh, characteristics. In a country like Australia, uh, where there's a successful local league, uh, they compete at the highest level across every sport, for, for example, in the Olympics, even though they have such a relatively small population, you know, we don't have to go in and create an infrastructure for sport. That exists already. There are players coming from Australia, uh, more than 10 of them now that are in the NBA. So that all exists. What we want to make sure is that this community can access our products, they can access our games, and they can really participate in the NBA in every way that they do everything else across sport. In a market like India, that sporting infrastructure is not in place right now. Uh, the challenges economically and given the, you know, the population of one and a half billion or more, they need a lot more support and education to make sure that kids have the opportunity to, to learn a sport and enjoy that experience. So we have developed our junior NBA program starting for five to 14 year olds. Then they can progress uh, to um, our basketball schools program if they want to continue sport. Uh, then they move on to our ACG jump where you can be identified for the NBA Academy. And then if you're, you know, continue to play at an elite level, you join the NBA Academy where you'll learn the skills that potentially could put you in a prep school or university in the U.S. In the G League, we now have Principal Singh, who came from the uh, NBA Academy, who's playing professionally in the U.S. in the NBA G League for Team Ignite. Um, and we know soon there'll be an Indian player that makes it to the NBA, whether it's Principal or somebody that looks up to him and then follows in his footsteps to move there. So we really want to start the program as a free program to get kids engaged. And then if they choose and they want to pursue it, there's a pathway all the, all the way to the top. So a couple points there I wanted to pick up on. One, just on the junior MBA, I know we'll explore that through over the course of the conversation, but we were talking about this earlier in, in, in Asia, in this part of the world. Junior MBA as a concept, as a program, is something that MBA has developed and provides to countries. Is that right? It, can, I just want to put a fine point on that. Sure. Our goal is to create, to help to create an ecosystem around basketball that is sustainable without the NBA. So we start by going in and we're doing significant investment because the program is free. So we are training teachers, whether that's your history teacher, your math teacher, who is also your physical education teacher. And when they go to physical education, they're teaching kids about sport. We want them to show the kids how to have fun when they're playing sport. Because this is about uh, conducting your life and, and having a healthy and active lifestyle, understanding how sport contributes to uh, better grades in school, to your environment at home. And the, you know, if you take the, the key characteristics like sportsmanship and teamwork and respect, those things are going to translate to whatever you decide to do in your life. So if we can have the kids engaged, we can have the teachers ultimately become coaches and then they create after-school programs to, for the kids to continue. Um, it all starts with our coaches doing the training, but then our coaches can step out 
And this continues without us. And we can move to either another part of the country or another country altogether and continue to develop that. At the end of the day, though, all of those activities that you talk about are great and they sound fun and they're really things that everybody wants to do. But at the end of the day, the MBA is still a business, right? It's a calculation here that if you foster the love of basketball, it will eventually pay off? Uh, without question. We, we are a for-profit business, and but it's part of our DNA to leave a positive impact on the communities where we do business. So while... Uh, we, we think that we can do well by doing good. And we want to make sure that there, there's going to be something that is positive when we walk away. And if there are more kids playing, we know that if you play the game, you're more likely to follow the game later on in life. You understand the sport, you're going to watch the sport. So uh, if we can create the big funnel at the top where we have all these kids that are playing the game, we know that many of them will watch, they will buy jerseys, they will consume the NBA in a variety of ways, whether that's through gaming, through music, through fashion, all the ways that the, the NBA comes to, comes to market. So yes, that's absolutely the long-term strategy, but we want to do more than that, just a for-profit piece. Can I pick up on concept you mentioned, Scott, which is the diversity and variety um, when you look across different countries in Asia? And let's just stay with India here for a minute. You know, You characterized it perhaps as a growth and emerging market for the NBA. Give us a sense of how the NBA for India has approached the question of localization and partnership. How have you, you know, where have you looked for partners in which sectors, you know, whether it's with a junior MBA or it's on the media side, give us a sense of how that strategy has unfolded for you to, to establish a presence start to build out in some of these different lines of effort and grow? India is a very young sports market. Uh, while clearly they've been playing cricket for a very long time, the, the IPL is only about 15 years old. Uh, the local soccer league is about 10 years old. And this is helping to build an ecosystem around sport where more people are watching, more people are playing. But it's a very local market. And our strategy has been to find local companies that already either have an audience or is looking to build with us. So we've announced two media partnerships this year, most recently with Star Sports, and they are carrying uh, our playoff games. They'll have the entire conference finals and finals. And Star has the largest media audience uh, across the country. And they're incredibly savvy at marketing and making sure that uh, they're very responsive to their fans. So uh, if they wanna see highlights, they have the highlights. If they wanna have in-depth features, they'll do that. But most importantly, now they're giving their fans access to our live games at our most exciting part of the season. Prior to that, uh, we struck a partnership with Prasar Bharti, which is the national broadcaster, um, as the only free TV option in the country, reaches the entire country. So they are showing classic games, highlights, and customized programming. Again, for them, it's to introduce more people to watching sport. Star Sports is already a community that is pursuing sport. For Sarbarti, it's much more about engaging people that may not pursue sport in their day-to-day -day activities. Similarly, our social media presence is very much localized, and we continue to adjust that. Uh, we have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Line, all with unique content strategies to engage the audiences based on what they're consuming. Uh, and all of those companies help us to, uh, to customize that. 
And similarly, when we approached our marketing partners and our merchandising partners, these are all companies that already understand the India audience. And then they are allowed to advise us really as to how we should approach that, what products we should have in market, what messaging we should offer, and then how do we bring people closer to the game. So India is is very unique and uh, we are extremely customized in that country. What different advice do you get from all of these different markets by your local partners in terms of how uh, the consumption trends vary in those regions? Well, we really have to introduce the game to the population in India. So the the country is, as you know, I mean, Bollywood is incredibly popular. Um, Our players are authentic across many different genres. Our players are active in fashion. They are connected to um, performers in, in around music. They are active gamers. They engage with their audience one on one in social media. I mean, you could actually have a conversation with some of our players. They will respond directly to you if you post something on their pages. And when we talk to our local partners, they say take all of those things and make them uh, Indian. So uh, we are working with influencers across social media. You know, Indian Bollywood stars, Indian musicians, Indian performers. And they're NBA fans. So they want to get more connected to the game, but we follow their lead as to how they engage. They have tens of millions of followers on social. So they're telling us, right, this is how you should approach my audience. Let's create this unique content and this will work for, you know, because I I know my people and that's why they're following me. Social media is great. Everybody loves it but sometimes it can get you into trouble, right? And the NBA knows this very well, especially with the China backlash coming from an executive tweeting about the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement. How do you adjust in every region to the political context that you're in? Well, our our organization, uh, as you have probably seen over the last year or so, and, and really beyond that, we are we are very vocal uh, and, and around social justice efforts. And we believe that we, as an organization, have an obligation and our players believe that they have an obligation to speak up when they see something that uh, they want to comment on. And we encourage that. So uh, if, if that's the approach you're going to take, then there are going to be some difficult conversations and some challenges you may have. But we fully believe that our players are individuals and they have the right to speak on issues that are important to them. We want to be a positive agent for change. And we are, you know, with our, our social justice initiative that we have committed, um, you know, multiple millions of dollars across our owners and our, our the league and our players, uh, we will continue to be a voice in that. So uh, we'll deal with whatever uh, challenges that, that come across, but we're going to continue to be vocal and active and, and hopefully uh, be able to help improve the world. What sort of government engagements do you have in every country that could potentially mitigate some of the uh, fallout if you would run into trouble? Uh, well, given that our programs, uh, as we talked about with Junior NBA, are generally uh, connected to the government, and we are not asking them for much, but we are asking for them their support. Take a country like Indonesia, where we have partnered with Jakarta Capital Municipal Government to introduce the Junior NBA curriculum into the school system so that if you go to physical education uh, in Jakarta, you're going to go through the NBA created curriculum in school. And that is going to be significantly better than the program you probably were going through before that, much more uh, structured. 
Um, so we try to have in every country relationships with the government because we want to know how we can be helpful. And in some countries, that may be by creating these programs. In other countries, there, there might be other needs that the government is trying to pursue. And we want to make sure that we're doing that as well. So uh, we have direct relationships with the government. And uh, we're very responsive when they, they ask us to support them in certain areas. And generally, they are the same uh, when we need their help. Scott, can I can I ask a pick up on this dimension of of responsiveness and sort of pursuing you know sort of key interests, key values? The world uh, we've all been tested in some tragic ways over the last year with the pandemic and and COVID nineteen. I'm curious if you could speak a little to sort of what the last eighteen months or so have been like from a couple of different dimensions. One, how have you adjusted? What you've, what you were doing prior to that, um, in terms of you know fostering the culture of sport and basketball, other initiatives and the like. Obviously, there've been no travel, so you know in arena games. And then second, how you know have you responded um, in any ways to the pandemic directly in some of these countries that have been hard hit? So, so two dimensions as it relates to the last year and a half or so. Yeah, I think uh, everybody in the world can relate to the challenges uh, of the last 18 months or so. And, you know, I hope everybody listening to this is uh, is doing well and staying healthy and, and hopefully coming out uh, generally uh, of the pandemic situation. It, it was really incredible to go through what we've gone through. If you think back to when we had to suspend our season uh, over a year ago now and getting through that immediate aftermath of that, and then to contemplate how we could possibly restart our season at some point in the future. And, and at that time, this had never been done before. The idea of creating an environment that was truly safe for our players, for our staff uh, to, to play the game, it, it, there was no blueprint for this. So our, our team in the U.S. did an absolutely amazing job to identify Orlando, to, to establish the bubble, to run a, the rest of our regular season and our entire playoffs with, uh, with no cases uh, from our players. Everybody was able to stay healthy. Um, but that came with severe mental challenges for, for our players. I mean, some of our players were in the bubble for, for more than 90 days, limited access to seeing their family. Some of them have young children. And you know, even though they had some freedom of movement around uh, the footprint uh, in Orlando, it was very limited relative to what they've had in a normal life. So it was incredible to get through that. And then, of course, we turned our season around very quickly after that, coming back in December to start up again. And uh, we played most of our season this year in front of in, in empty arenas. Yeah. So a very different experience for our players, and of course, a, a very different viewing experience. So we had to modify our game uh, broadcast and try to keep it compelling where normally we would be showing the crowds and all the excitement in the arena. Now our players were playing in very quiet arenas and our fans were watching games on television with a very different dynamic. So all of those challenges were, were difficult, but we, we were able to, to get through it and hopeful that as people were going through the, the challenges they were facing personally, you know, having the distraction of being able to, to watch a sport that they love was, was helpful in some way. And I know that um, while our players dealt with a lot of mental challenges 
uh, and they, there's no question that our fans were dealing with the same. And hopefully we were able to alleviate that a little bit. And what was the impact in Asia for your operations and strategy? Yeah, many of our programs are, uh, particularly the junior NBA, uh, are on-ground activities. And we have, um, when we do our, co- our junior NBA coaches academies, we'll have 3,000, 4,000 coaches in an arena going through the, the academy and, and learning how to do this. And so we had a very quickly shift to a virtual experience while simultaneously keeping track of what was happening in each country. So in a country like the Philippines, we were trying to secure masks because early on there were no N95 masks available for the uh, frontline workers. So we were trying to do that. And in India, we were trying to identify vaccines for not only for our staff, but more broadly for the population. Other countries like Australia had things under control, but were completely shut down. And we, with very little we could do there. So we were just trying to be, again, responsive to the community, understand if we can be helpful through content, we would do that. If we can be helpful by securing PPE, we wanted to do that. We wanted to keep track of our employees and make sure they were safe and healthy. And now in, in many countries, not all, I mean, Philippines and India or Indonesia, even Japan, still um, struggling in a lot of ways, but other countries like Australia, to a certain degree, Vietnam, starting to open up and we are uh, getting active there again and just trying to make sure that even though people can't travel, they can still engage with the NBA. Uh, so uh, our home court app, which is uh, a very exciting, it's only available on iOS right now, but hopefully Android soon, allows kids to participate in competitions mm. using this app on their phone in their home. So that's another way for them to keep active. Mm. So in which countries across uh, the Asian region are you coming back faster? Yeah, the, it's definitely Australia and Vietnam. Uh, Korea, to a certain degree, is, is moving forward. And, um, uh, you know, I think now in, in Japan, in Philippines, in, Indo- in India, we are much more active as far as content distribution. We're trying to make sure we're running our virtual academies uh, so kids have an opportunity to participate through Zoom. But on the ground in those countries is probably going to be a bit slower. It's going to be, it's going to be a little while before we're able to fly into these countries and actually conduct events on the ground. You mentioned uh, some of the challenges that your players were going through during this pandemic. As somebody who has worked closely with athletes, how do you feel about the Tokyo Olympics coming up in just a few weeks? Because it's an opportunity for athletes to compete, but at the same time, there seems to be a lot of opposition, public opposition on the potential that this could be a super spreader event. Yeah, we're, we're very sensitive to um, the Japanese government. Uh, and the challenges that they're facing protecting their population. And, and we're, uh, we know that uh, all the, the, the groups that are involved in this will come together and, and focus on that. And, and we're confident that if the events go ahead, if the Olympics move forward, that they will be able to create an environment that is safe for players, uh, for the local population, and for all the administration that's involved in conducting the Olympics, uh, similar to what we were able to do in Orlando around our bubble. So you know, where we know that everybody is very focused on that. And the athletes, uh, they, as always, they, they want to compete. And they, their goal is to, you know, to be successful at what they do. And they've trained incredibly hard to get there. So, you know, if, if they're confident that there is a safe environment for them to participate, I'm sure uh, the performances will be absolutely incredible as they always are. 
Um, but that's that's really important. You know, we spent a lot of time in creating the bubble in Orlando, talking to our players, walking them through all the protocols that we had put in place, making sure that they felt uh, we had addressed everything. And then we were reactive when when things happen. Of course, every day something new came up that we hadn't anticipated. And I'm sure the IOC and uh, will have similar challenges. And and then you have to react and make sure you make the adjustments necessary to keep everybody safe. You mentioned earlier, Scott, relatively mature basketball ecosystem in Australia produces, you know, top performing athletes. I'm just curious, you know, you we've also talked about the Philippines, you know, I've heard you say might have number one, you might be the number one country with for basketball affinity in the world. If you look around the region, which country is developing the fastest, if you say set Australia aside, in terms of producing basketball athletes that rival basketball in the United States. I mean, the United States tends to dominate basketball in the Olympics, you know, at the top levels. Who's up and coming? Yeah, it's it's a really exciting region right now. And, and you're seeing as sport develops in each of these countries, you have more and more athletes coming up. So I mentioned before, we now have two Japanese athletes that are playing in the NBA, which is the first time we've ever had that. And if you look at all sports in Japan, when you know they have now athletes competing across every sport at the top level. So it's not surprising that, that we have two, uh, two, two players in the NBA. And that encourages more kids to play. So we expect that there will be more athletes coming from there. Um, we have a Korean player that's playing at Davidson in the U.S. right now, Division One, And we're hopeful that in a year or two, uh, he will also either join the G League or join the NBA. Derek Michael Xaviero from Indonesia has just joined our Global Academy. It's the first Indonesian player that will be, he'll be in Australia at our Global Academy. And um, he has tremendous prospects for eventually making it to a professional league in the NBA, the G League, uh, or the NBA. So adding that to Australia, of course, we have we have multiple players from the Philippines, including uh, Jalen Green, who uh, played for in the G League for Team Ignite, who has Filipino heritage, and he will probably be a relatively early pick in the NBA draft coming up. Uh, Josh Giddy who is a graduate of our academy in Australia, is an Australian player uh, playing in the NBL this season. He will also most likely be an early pick playing in, you know, in the NBA next year. So, you know, we can look around every single country and see opportunity. Uh, even a country like Vietnam, uh, Henry Nguyen and his team, they have now uh, over the last five years established a local league, the VBA, where there's a national competition going on for basketball they have created the NCAA, where now universities are competing across multiple sports in Vietnam. And, you know, we've had uh, Johnny uh, Juzang playing for UCLA, and his brother is mm-hmm. playing in the VBA in Vietnam. So there are just so many athletes coming out of Asia in basketball and really across every sport. We just had, you know, the U.S. Uh, US Open winner across uh, mm-hmm. for women's golf, a uh, 19-year-old lady from the Philippines. So these success stories are just going to continue and continue and, and basketball will be at the forefront. I can see you smiling about all of this. And of course, it's a good thing to have really diversity in sports, right? But at the same time, is it also because it just makes your job easier selling and the NBA, selling the sport across Asia? Uh, absolutely does. But it's also, you know, I've been working in this region now for more than a decade. I have established great relationships. I have seen the tremendous work that is going into developing sport 
uh, across this region and, and the dedicated people that are concerned about, you know, again, the health and wellness of kids and, and really trying to bring the attributes of sport to the general population. And to see all these groups, all the hard work paying off uh, and having athletes compete at the highest level on the global stage across basketball and beyond is just, it's just so encouraging and so rewarding. And again, you know, many of these people are my friends now, and I'm just thrilled that all their hard work is, is really paying off and they can see the fruits of their labor. Scott, talk to us a little bit about gender equity in the programs and operations as you try to foster basketball in Asia. Obviously, NBA is, is all male. I have an impression that you partner to some degree with the WNBA in some of your, your work in the region. But, and I've, you know, heard, you know, there's, it's open to both uh, boys and girls, the junior NBA, but but give us a sense of how you've prioritized fostering this among both boys and girls in, in what you've done. Absolutely. And, and thank you for, for raising that. Uh, basketball, one of the gr- another great thing about basketball is that it is a gender neutral sport. Uh, and we, we have for our programs in Asia, you know, our goal is to be 50-50 uh, boys and girls throughout the program. Now, the NBA, I refer to the NBA and, and it's really the the umbrella of four leagues. You know, it's the NBA, the WNBA, the G League, and the NBA 2K League, which is our e-gaming league. And the WNBA is having an incredible season. We're, we're right kind of one-third of the way into the WNBA season. We have athletes from all over the world playing in the WNBA, and, and there's a tremendous following developing for the WNBA. So our goal is to make sure that we're identifying the best young boys and girls that are playing the sport, have them make sure that they have a great experience and continue to progress up the ladder and ultimately play. And in some countries, um, that's more challenging. Uh, in the Philippines, for example, um, there are so many boys playing the game when we run our programs. The ratio is much more heavily skewed. But then uh, we dig in on that and we try to identify you know, what the challenges are, try to find ways to encourage more girls to play the game. And we've been able to narrow that gap in other countries like Thailand, for example, since we started the program, uh, there have been more girls playing than boys. And that's, you know, that's just wonderful. And then a country like Australia, um, their men's and women's teams are playing at the highest level and have been for decades. So they have already built this tremendous infrastructure for both boys and girls to play uh, at a young level and all the way up to the, the elitist. How does the demographic background of some of these regions across Asia affect your decision on how much you invest in a country, especially given that not only do they also provide the potential of younger people joining the league, but also becoming fans and just really cultivating basketball in the country? Yeah, countries are at varying stages of development, of course, countries like Japan, Korea, Singapore, Australia, their economies are, are very well developed and, and they are uh, investing a significant amount in sport. These are markets where we want to simultaneously build popularity, but there are also opportunities economically for us as we build our business to generate revenue currently. In other countries like Indo- India, Indonesia, or really Southeast Asia in general, you have tremendous populations, right? You have India, one and a half billion in Southeast Asia, you have 600 million. And you know these are economies that are developing, growing middle class, more disposable income, uh, more free time to pursue sport. And while we are generating revenue in all of these countries today, we expect that they will play a, a larger role in our 
our global economy, the NBA's global economy, as they continue to develop. So that's why we're really focusing on participation. And Jerry, as you as you said earlier, we believe that greater participation will pay off for us uh, later on uh, in the business. So uh, we're hopeful for that. If we look ahead, Scott, and envision and transitioning to a time where there's more travel, there's more in-person engagement, um, ability to do things that as we did, you know, in 2019 and prior to that. First question I have for you is, um, how do you envision the in-arena games in Asia? How does that component of the NBA's overall strategy and presence, what does that look like going forward? I know if I recall correctly, there was you know, a couple games in Mumbai. There might have been a couple games in Japan in 2019. If I, I, I may be wrong on that, yeah. but 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 give me a sense of what do you think that looks like going forward? Or is or are we shifting to a world where probably going to be n- not you know it'll only be a small a handful of in arena games and really the brand and the and NBA is about this broader ecosystem that we're talking about. It seems, in some ways, it seems that October 2019 just happened, and sometimes it seems like it was a very long time ago, Uh, but you're absolutely right. We played, in the span of nine days, we played two games in in Mumbai, two games in Tokyo, and uh, two games in China. Uh, In addition, we played regular season games in Mexico, and for the first time ever, we played a game in Paris, France. So bringing the NBA experiences to fans is a really important part of what we do. And while we have not been able to do that for the last year and a half, uh, we fully expect to go back to that model as things uh, open up in countries and as it's safe for our players and for our fans to attend events like that. So we, for the games themselves, that will continue to happen. And for our other experiences like Junior NBA, three-on-three competitions or any other uh, way to engage with our fans on the ground, bringing NBA players or NBA legends, WNBA players and legends over to Asia. Um, We're very hopeful that by 2022, uh, we will be back on something of a regular schedule and have regular appearances across the region. Do you expect some pent-up demand to really explode when all of those uh, events happen? Are you seeing some of that in some of those countries that are reopening faster than others? Well, I can say I've seen it in New York. Uh, I (laughs) was in uh, Madison Square Garden last week, and I was in Barclays Center for the Brooklyn Nets game last night. And fans are happy to be back. They are are very loud, and uh, they are... They're, it's, it's, it seems even more engaged than they were. Um, and our fans, you know, our, our, our fans are very close to the game. Our buildings are, uh, you know, very close to the court generally. So I fully expect that that will happen in Asia as well. As we come back to the region, people really want to participate again. They want to be around each other. Sport is, is tribal. And, you know, part of the experience is, you know, after a great play, looking to your right and to your left and enjoying that moment with others around you. And while you could do that on Zoom and we could have a great experience, it's that physical proximity that really differentiates sport from virtually anything else. So uh, I'm expecting everybody to come back 100%. To your point, 
I mean, sports is really something that you can feel right there and, and the atmosphere is different. It's fun. It's being with other people in close proximity. Going back to the Tokyo Olympics, though, it will be very restricted. No overseas fans. What do you expect that to look like? And do you expect it to have the same impact as a as a Olympics in normal times would look like? Well, I expect that the competition will be at a premier level. Uh, the Olympians that are are there um, have been training, and uh, they generally, when they perform, they perform at an incredibly high level. But it will be different. It will be different, just like uh, NBA games and our experience in the bubble, and really the experience up until really the last month where we've been playing uh, games in front of empty arenas. Uh, it will be up to the broadcast team to figure out ways to keep the viewing experience uh, engaging. And you, you don't realize how much of that comes from the fans and the energy you feel in the arena during a, an event that communicates back to when you're watching it on television. But you know the, the Olympic broadcasters are, uh, are incredible and they will bring the, the in-arena experience or, or the outdoor experience, depending on the sport, to life, they will continue to tell incredible stories about the athletes. And I think uh, people will find themselves getting lost in the competition. And, you know, while it may take a few days to work out some of the bugs, just like it did for us when we started broadcasting games, the experience will continue to improve over the two weeks of the Olympics. And, and you'll find yourself really engaged with the sport. Scott, when we touched on the Philippines earlier, you know, you mentioned they have an established local or national league there and i'm sure a number of other countries do as well and you know the nba has had a fair amount of success in most of these markets Get, i i mentioned ask you a little bit of a pointed question here to what degree is there a competitive dimension between the nba's um, approach in a country like the philippines that has such a basketball culture and the local league the local organizations how does that work in practice? Can you describe that to us and our listeners? Uh, sure. We we work in sync. Basketball, everywhere in the world, we want to support that experience. So I have very close personal relationships with everybody in the PBA and the Philippines, and I could go country by country and say the exact same thing. Uh, when the, the B-League launched in Japan, uh, we brought Horace Grant over. Uh, and we participated in their opening ceremony and we uh, advised them for two years leading up to that to help them create the in-arena experience, to uh, help in the training of their players and continue to remain closely connected with them through every stage of their development. Uh, we believe that for the NBA to be successful, uh, we need strong local leagues. There has to be an experience where fans want to go to watch an NBA, uh, watch a basketball game in the country, to buy a ticket, uh, to see their local heroes play. And um, that's why we're so encouraged. I already mentioned Vietnam, but we're seeing the same thing in Indonesia, in Thailand, um, in, in India, eventually, uh, rel relatively soon, we're going to see the same mm -hmm. thing. So, you know, we, we want to offer whatever assistance we can. We will participate by showing up, by sending our our coaches over by sending our uh, arena operations people over, our ticket salespeople, whatever is necessary. Um, and we want to work with them on content. So when you're watching NBA highlights, we want to make sure you see the local league as well and vice versa so that you understand there is a connection 
between all basketball. It's very different from European football where players are, have to make a decision. Do I want to play in Germany or in Spain or in England? If you're the best players in the world in basketball, you're going to play in the NBA. There's no controversy on that. And maybe down the road, if some local league becomes competitive with the NBA, we maybe we'll have a different point of view. Uh, but even in Australia, where the level of play is very, very high, any, uh, any player playing in that league that can make it to the NBA is going to come over and participate. So, so we're fully supportive and we'll remain engaged. Scott, thanks so much. This has been a terrific conversation. Really appreciate you spending some time with us to unpack kind of the NBA's presence, its strategy, its outlook in the Asia-Pacific region. My best wishes to you and thanks again. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate your, your interest in the NBA. I hope you all stay safe and healthy and that we can all do this in person uh, in the near future. Thank you, Scott. And thank you to our listeners as well. Please be sure to rate us on the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access the full video of our conversation at theasiagroup.com. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.